And so would you stand as we read the Word of God in a passage that, frankly, I've never heard preached or talked about or taught about, and it's one of the most fascinating passages in the life of Elisha as we look at the best of things in the worst of times. 2 Kings 8, 1. Now, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go with your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come on the land for seven years. <coughs> so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went out to appeal to the king for her house and for her field. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. As he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land, even until now. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick, and was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. The king said to Haziel, Take a gift in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, forty camels loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You will recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Hazel said, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, Because... I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. Then Aziel said, But what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. So he departed from Elisha and returned to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. On the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died, and Haziel became king in his place. Wow. You may be seated. When Jesus said that the kingdom of God had come to them by the finger of God, he was referring to a very famous passage 
to all of the Jews, Exodus 8, 19, when after the onslaught of God's plagues on Egypt, they said, this is the finger of God. And they realized they had been beaten by the power of the Lord. God has His hand on His people. But He is touching the world in many different ways. First of all, the finger of God touches His creation. And you see this in verses 1 through 6. Actually, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, it says, I consider the heavens the work of your fingers. God caused a famine to come upon the land. Now, I don't want to go into, uh, you know, all the uh, metaphysical or philosophical questions of why does God do this or that, but we do know that He called for, that's the word, He called for a famine. And the psalm says He did the very same thing over the land when Joseph was in Egypt. And God used that famine and insight in a dream for Joseph to become second in command in all of Egypt. Now, a few chapters before, chapter 4, we met this unique woman that is talked about here. It's a, it's a long story, but just to give you a quick flyover, she said, Behold, I perceive this is a holy man of God who passes by us continually. That's Elisha. And she invited him to come in and have a meal. Then she fixed a little prophet's chamber up above the house for whenever he was in town, he had a, had a room and a place to be and to stay and be refreshed. And one day Elisha asked her, what can I do for you? And his servant said, she is unable to have children. Her husband is old. The Bible never flies over that one as I think about my birthday. Anyway, uh, so uh, Elisha, by the Spirit of God, predicted that she would have a child by that time next year. And sure enough, she had a son. But a few years later, working out in the field, the boy had something like a stroke and died. And so she went and summoned Elisha to come. He prayed, and in a very powerful passage, he lays down over this child. He prays for him. He breathes into his mouth like resuscitation. But the key is he prayed, and God restored that boy to life. And now, perhaps a little while later, and her husband has died, more, uh, apparently. He, he was old, remember? And uh, he died. She is a widow now with a son still. And when God called for a famine, just as he did the same wording in Psalm 105, 16, then he told her that the Lord wanted her to go to the land of their enemies, the Philistines, and stay there for seven years. Now, whether you understand about how God works in the weather, He summons the seasons. They do His bidding. He called for a famine because He had a higher plan. And His plan includes even an individual, a woman and her child. The prophet Agabus had predicted a famine in the early church with an unusual prophetic gifting in Acts eleven twenty-eight 28-30. 
Because Amos 3.7 says, and other passages as well, that God does nothing except reveal his servant, to his servants his secrets. The Lord works through his people, and he reveals secrets to them. And so the Lord said, I have a plan here. And I have a plan not just for the whole nation, but for one woman and her son. And so she did the Lord's will, and she went to that place. Now, some of you wonder, how does God work through creation? I don't know. What does he do? I don't always understand it for sure. But there is a tendency among people to veer into Eastern mysticism, into some form of metaphysical ambiguity. I I heard just this morning on the television, the Speaker of the House talking about making sacrifices to an angry Mother Earth. God help us. Mother Earth is is not just a, a figure of speech, it is a form of worship, and thus the environmentalism that we have today. Mother Earth. There are some people who have a superstition about various trinkets or things. A few years ago, they were promoting a thing among athletes called power balance. You wear this uh, bracelet, and it gives you more power and balance, most of which I do not have with anything that I would wear (laughs) or not wear. I don't have enough power, I don't have enough balance. But there are people who have superstitions about things they wear. Did you know that when Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls, he always wore University of North Carolina shorts under his Bull shorts every game? He would not miss a game without it. Wade Boggs, the famous baseball hitter, 10,000 times at bat, I'm, I'm sorry, 10,000 times in his 18 career, every one of those 10,000 times when he got up to bat, he would carve in the dirt at, the, at home plate the letters of the word life in Hebrew. In Hebrew letters. And he's not even Jewish. Ancient gladiators in the Roman arena would always step into the sand of the arena dominant foot first. Now, whether you have stuffed animals, lucky underwear, power bracelets, or you keep your fingers crossed, or you won't walk under a ladder, or whatever, it's not by superstition that God works, but by His sovereignty and through the supplications of His people. Through the power of His omnipotent finger. It's not what I do. Get out of your vocabulary words like fate. We walk by faith and not by fate. Get out of your vocabulary. I thank my lucky stars. I love to sing that song, but I thank my God that I am an American. I'm proud to be an American, not an astrologer. And I'm not going to thank any lucky star for putting me in this place of grace. Get it out of your vocabulary. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has given him that it might be paid back to him again? Romans 11 says, 
God doesn't get loans from banks. He doesn't need a bailout. He doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't have to lay on a psychiatrist's couch or get in a support group or call Dr. Phil. He is God. He is sovereign Lord. And with one little touch of his finger, the entire world can explode. But with that same touch of the finger, God can move a woman and her child. But this finger of God secondly molds circumstances. And you see that in verses 1 through 6. Now, the key is our response must be correct to his work in circumstances. Our response to what God is doing is the key here. She obeyed and she went. Now, while famines remind us that God is in charge of nature and only He can bring forth the fruit of the harvest, death reminds us that also death and life are in the hand of God. If God wants you to be healed, no matter the diagnosis of the doctor or the medicine, you will be healed. If He wants you to die and go home to heaven, that's in His hands as well. And no matter what they say or try to do, they will not override God's sovereign will. Now, I'm not saying that we don't go to doctors and get help, but when I was so sick with pneumonia and COVID in the hospital all those days, at the worst time, the doctor only said to my family, we just can support him. That's all we can do. Basically, they'd done what all they could do. It was in the hands of God. And here I am today. Amen. It is well. Amen. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says, no one has power in the day of death. That means that if God is ready to bring you home, no power of man can stop him. But you see, our response is key with the word but. But. The difference between rams and the Lord's sheep are very, is very simple. Not only are sheep different creatures, sheep hear his voice, Jesus said, as the good shepherd. And they don't but him like rams would do. There's two ways to look at but. On one hand, we can argue with God and say, I don't like what you're doing. I won't do what you're doing. And we could say, but God in argument, or we can say, but Lord in faith. It's just like Joseph when he responded to the the meanness, the betrayal, the hatred of his brothers. And when finally he confronted them there in Egypt as they came for food in the famine, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the preservation of life. In Genesis 50, verse 20. But God, that's because his will is the key here. But God, I'm going to listen to you. But Lord... I may want this, but I yield to your will. Because Romans 12 says in verses 1 and 2 that when we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice and our minds are transformed, we prove the will of God, which is three things, good, acceptable, and perfect. 
It's good because he is good. He is all wise, and there is no evil in his will and plan. It's acceptable. If it's acceptable to God, it's fine with me. And it's perfect. In his plan, he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, when you look at the widow here, it's interesting her response was yieldedness because God was specific and then general. In his plan to go to the Philistines, uh, by the way, she moved to the coast. I'm sure they thought it was paradise. And she moved down to the coastland, and uh, God said, you're to wait there seven years. You're to go to the Philistines. That's time, that's place, and calamity because of the famine. But then God did not give her more specifics. What house to buy? What job to take? What church to join? Uh, because you see, God sometimes gives us a general sense of leading, and then instead of a blueprint where we have it all in front of us at one time, God's will is like a scroll that unrolls day by day. Moment by moment, trusting Him. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And the favorite verse of so many is in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, His paths grow brighter and brighter the next day. In Proverbs chapter 4, He reveals the scroll day by day. And we trust Him. But at the same time, we are willing to do what he says and separate from the familiar. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God called Abraham and he said, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave your people to go to the land that I will show you. I was a young college student sitting in church one day. I'd been visiting a church that was away from my home church. And I'd been struggling with uh, just coldness and what seemed like spiritual deadness in the church that I had grown up in. My parents were there. Friends were there. I had been called to preach, saved there, licensed there. But I was just drying up spiritually. And so I visited this other church, the North Phoenix Baptist Church in uh, Arizona there. And I was sitting in church one day, and the pastor opened the Scripture to Genesis 12.1. And it was just as clear as a bell that the Spirit seemed to be saying to me, you will soon leave your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. And I knew from that time on that the Lord wanted me to leave that other church and go to that church. And then the Lord showed me I had not been scripturally baptized following salvation. And so I was baptized, but I lost a number of friends who thought I'd been a hypocrite before, who had been in that former church. They didn't understand. And I would explain to them, but, but God was leading me like this. But God had a plan, and my response was blessed, though, by the Lord. My parents didn't even understand. And when this woman left the land of her people, her own people, as she called them, in another passage, 
She left her spiritual support group, her closeness with the prophet. Remember, the prophet stayed in her home, in that special room. That was like her church, and she had her friends and her family. She had her own home and house and field and job and vocation. And God said, leave it and trust me. And she did. How tough that was. But then, not only is our response to be correct, our thinking must be Christian. Because, you see, there is one very important word. It's called providence. God works through providence. Particularly, we see that in verses 4 to 6. Providence means, in two words from the Latin, uh, providio, he sees beforehand and provides accordingly. In other words, we're on parallel tracks. We can't see what God is doing, but God is working at the same time. We're living, He's working. We're doing this, and God is providing. He is in the eternal now. He sees down the road because everything is now to God. And He provides. When we get down to that point in the tracks, God is already there. He has provided what we need. Haven't you seen that to be true? And so when the woman, after seven years, returned home, squatters or even King Jehoram himself, acting like his mother Jezebel, somebody had taken all of her land and her house and claimed it as theirs. It was no longer hers. And I'm sure at one point she wondered Why did God lead me like this? But God was working in His providence. Because also God has perfect timing. Now, in verse 5, you see, God, in the parallel tracks, God had Gehazi, that assistant to Elisha, to be in the palace talking to the king. And he's telling what great things God has done through Elisha, including raising this woman's son from the dead. The emphasis, though, is not on how great Elisha is, but how great God is. And at that very moment, in walks the widow and her son, just as Gehazi is telling the story, and he said, well, would you look at that? This This is the woman. This is the boy that was raised from the dead. How perfect is God's intersection of our lives and interception of us in His perfect timing and will? You say, well, that's just crazy. That's just by chance. Oh, no. It's by God's choice and providential plan. You never know what God is doing at this very moment to meet a need that you're going to have down the road. He is doing something. Jesus said in John 5, my father is always working and I am working. When I pastored at First Baptist Albuquerque, New Mexico, I had gone through a a time of great soul searching and uh, uh, some uneasiness about the will of God in my life and the ministry that we had there. Unbeknownst to me, while I was up on the mountain of Uh, spending a day in prayer on the Sandia Mountain, climbing, hiking, and praying. God was preparing a storm 
And not long after that, a blizzard blew through on the other side of the, the range of mountains in New Mexico and confined a pastor search committee from the church in Texas, First Baptist Lubbock, Texas. They were stuck in their motel room because of this blizzard that just could cover everything, including the interstate. They, they were on their way to Albuquerque to hear another pastor preach. When they turned on the TV, they thought, well, let's just have church here in the motel room. They turned the TV on, and I was preaching from the First Baptist Church on our television ministry. And they heard me, they saw me, and within a couple of weeks, they contacted me. And within a very short period of time, I was in view of a call as their pastor. You say, oh, it's a blizzard. God summoned that storm. Because God works also through people. In verse 6, he worked through Gehazi. He worked through the king even. The scripture says in Proverbs, he turns the king's heart like channels of water wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1. The Lord works through individuals in our lives. That's why we need to be spirit-led in our networking, our friendships, our contacts. And so what did she do? She had gone to appeal to the king, praying that he would justly hear her cause and restore what had been taken from her. There's nothing wrong with making an appeal or even following through legal channels for a redress of wrongs. If perhaps a lawsuit is involved, the Scripture gives some guidelines about that. But the issue is our heart. It must not be filled with greed or covetousness or revenge or hatred. And so she appealed to the king, and of all things, remember, God is working through people, and God moved on that king not only to restore her land to her and her house, but all the income from her land that she had lost over those seven years. Can you believe that? That's where Ephesians 3.20 comes in. God does exceeding abundant above all we could ask or think according to his glorious power working in us. Do you believe that? Do you live in Ephesians 3.20? Or are you thinking God's being chintzy with you or unloving? I believe when God moved on Paul and he suffered such terrible wrongs at the hands of the Jewish leaders who had rejected Christ, God allowed him to go through the legal system of the Romans known throughout history as one of the most just system, court systems in the ancient world. He appealed, and if you want to study it, look at Acts 24. They brought charges against Paul through their, to the authority, the Roman authority. They even had a highfalutin lawyer named Tullus. I mean, he was, uh, he was a big deal. And they brought in the best lawyer they could find. But the Roman system allowed for justice and fairness in that Paul was told the charges against him, and then he was given an opportunity to respond to those charges. And you see him preaching a sermon 
through a good part of the book of Acts in defense and explanation. Now, eventually he had to appeal to Caesar, and that took him to Rome and all the other adventures God brought him through. But there was a legal system. I'd always rather work with a lever than a screwdriver, wouldn't you? But I trust God with his finger on the lever. And then lastly, the finger of God points out truth through his servants. And you see that in this unusual passage, verses 7 to 15. Now, just as God is working when people are not aware of it, he is speaking when people do not receive it. My good friend Chuck Colson, who used to be in our church and is now in glory, would tell how a special counsel to President Nixon, there would be some uh, preacher or evangelical leader or someone like this who would talk really big, and he said, once we got them into the Oval Office, they melted. They just were no longer such big talkers. There was something about the aura of the presidency, the, the intimidation of being face-to-face with the president himself, not to mention Chuck, who would be more, even more intimidating at that time, the hatchet man for President Nixon. But here's what Chuck said in response to all of this. He said, but now we as the people of faith must speak truth to power. We must speak truth to power in all political events. So another leader, King Ben-Hadad II. By the way, that's his throne name. His personal name was Adad Idri. He had heard of this amazing man of God, and he wanted to inquire through him to God, the God that Elisha served and believed in, if he would survive a serious illness. And so Elisha heard that he had been talked about, and so amazingly, he made his way all the way up to Damascus into enemy territory. Remember, this is the guy that had sent armies to have him killed. And others had been after him for some time. And yet Elisha just marches right up there and right into the palace and speaks truth to power. We speak, there are four things I want to mention to you. We speak with truthfulness. Whether we are a prophet or a simple believer of the Lord, God only signs his name to what's true, right? And our tongues must speak truth Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the Bible says in Proverbs. Have you ever heard of a blue whale? The largest creature on earth. Can you imagine how large the tongue is of a blue whale? I'd hate to be the doctor that says, say ah. (laughs) But do you realize that your tongue, only a few ounces in weight, is far more powerful than the tongue of a blue whale? You can destroy unity. You can hurt lives, reputations, families, churches. You can use it for evil. And that's what James is all about in talking about the tongue. Or our tongues can be used for good, to preach the gospel, to encourage the faint-hearted, to bring comfort to the grieving. 
to lift up those who are fallen and say, God loves you and has a plan for your life. Just talk a blue streak. It makes a whale of a difference. But we speak with discernment as well. Elisha knew exactly what to say to that king, but he also knew what to say to Haziel, the chief of staff. By the way, his name meant son of nobody. He was a total jerk. You'll see why. Elisha gave the, the witness. He gave the message. All right, by God's direction, tell the king he will recover from this illness, but he will die. And so Haziel just gave the first part of the message because he didn't want to tip off the king that he had an evil threat in mind. He gave that message, and the very next day he took a, a wet cloth and smothered the king to death, and he became the evil king of that realm for 40 years. But when Elisha met him, here's what he did. He spoke truth to power to Haziel with discernment. Discernment is so critical because it means we have prayed, we have inquired of the Lord, and we ask God, what should I say to him? The right words, the right time, the right manner, with the right effect, and hopefully the right result. Most of us do not pray for discernment, but we have to, or we'll burn more bridges than we will build. And I believe that discernment is like fishing. I'm not a fisherman. I've done it a few times. But you know where to drop that bait, and you know when to pull it in. You know when to reel it in. And so you share from personal testimony as the Lord leads, and you see how that person responds to the personal spirit-on-spirit, life-on-life approach. How do they respond to what you tell about your life? And how you overcame that or how you dealt with something. If they respond to it, then you can say even more directly certain things in truthfulness. But always praying for discernment. And then we speak, speak with compassion. Elisha stared deeply into the face of this evil man and wept. Which seems so out of character, doesn't it? But he weeps because this man will do such evil Killing Israeli soldiers, killing pregnant women, ripping open their stomachs, slaughter, infanticide, genocide. We have to speak the truth to power still in our culture today. With the danger, abortion is not over. We have to continue to say, this is wrong because, and then we have to give a reasoned biblical answer. And there are many because God is the creator of life. By the way, the same reasoning of, of euthanasia is used by those who promote abortion. What's to keep them from exterminating any of us here because we're over 55? Life does not matter. But we speak lastly with boldness. 
It's the distinguishing mark of being filled with the Spirit, according to Acts 4, 29-31. And the Bible says, Paul spoke with boldness, with reliance upon the Holy Spirit and the Lord, Acts 14, 3. Freedom of speech is the exact meaning of the word boldness. You say what God wants you to say freely. You don't pull your punches, but you do it with love. One of our ladies in our church met Senator Bob Dole when he was running for president. And she went up to him. He'd already talked about how he had uh, climbed the ladder of success and overcome many, many obstacles. And when she met him in the greeting line, she said, Senator, is your ladder leaning against the right wall? Is it? Is it leaning against the right wall? When we were in Colorado a couple of years ago, we went through Royal Gorge. And we drove, rode in the old steam engine train through that amazing canyon with the river. It's near the Supermax prison in Canyon. Many, many years known as one of the uh, places to keep the very worst criminals in the West. And the criminals, the convicts of the prison, cut through that wall and laid those tracks. Years ago, even. And one of them, with some chalk, had written on the stone wall, the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs thirteen fifteen. The way of the transgressor is hard. Is your letter leaning on the right wall, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? You're not climbing for yourself, but you're doing it for Him and them. Let's pray. The Egyptian magicians in the day of Moses finally said, this is the finger of God. But then it goes on to say, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let the people go. Is your heart hard or soft today? Listen, the way of the transgressor is indeed hard. And I urge you today to listen to the truth of what is said, not by me necessarily, but by the Spirit of God. Because it's all based on what Jesus has done for us and what he wants to continue to do through us. <coughs> Let me ask you a question as you pray. How many would say, Hayes, God has spoken to me today about the need to trust him in a difficult situation? I don't understand why I'm here, I'm, what I'm doing, but I'm trusting God. Anybody like that? I see your hands. Anybody want to do that? I see your hand. Amen. I'm going to be standing at the front. We're going to give an appeal for you to come and give your heart to Christ today. The way of resisting Him is indeed hard, but ultimately awful in a place called hell. You may be confined in a prison right now of your own choice and making, but the Lord will set you free. 
his power, his finger. <laughs> he could touch you in an instant. You can be changed and forgiven, born again, a new person. And we want to share with you how to do that. Lord, we continue to pray and ask that you would show us all the specifics and then help us, Lord, to trust you with the generalities. I ask you to draw people to yourself today. Lord, help us to make life-changing decisions. Help us to be willing to trust you when we can't understand or know what we're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.